Welcome to the Human Insight Podcast, where we help you bridge the empathy gap and bring you valuable new insights and understanding on the most innovative ideas and trends shaping the future of business and customer experience. I'm Andy McMillan, Chief Executive Officer of User Testing, and I'm joined by my co-host, Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer. Today, we're excited to invite Mike Mackert, Director of the Center of Health Communication at the University of Texas at Austin, to the show. Well, thanks for joining us, Mike. We're excited to, uh, to have you on the podcast. You know, Janelle and I and the team at User Testing have been engaged in a whole bunch of companies that are uh, testing in and around both health messages, health-related messages, as you would imagine with the virus, uh, and, and healthcare systems who are now dealing with this big surge in telemedicine. And we thought it'd be interesting to get a little bit of your perspective. So uh, if you could take a moment, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background and your role at the University of Texas, Austin. Sure. So my name is Mike Mackert. I'm the director of the University of Texas at Austin Center for Health Communication. Um, We're pretty unique. As far as we know, we're the only academic center in the country that is jointly shared by a college of communication and a medical school. So I'm actually faculty both in the Sam Richards School of Advertising and Public Relations, but then also population health at the med school. Um, I often tell outsiders that don't exactly understand what we do that we're like a health advertising firm, Hyatt University. We do projects with external partners, whether it be the state of Texas or MD Anderson for CDC sometimes to build and develop sort of health communication campaigns that include a mix kind of a faculty, graduate students, and our, our internal staff team. That makes a tremendous amount of sense. How did that come about? Like, how did the idea at UT Austin come about to kind of have this initiative take place between these two different schools? Yeah, uh, on the College of Communication side of campus for years, the, the previous dean had been hiring faculty who could do health communication work because it's some of the, the research in communication that is more funded, can be more funded by external partners. And so he was sort of building a health comm center without having the resources to have an official center yet. And then uh, when the med school showed up and we got a big naming gift for the college, we had the chance to... Uh, recruit our founding director was is Jay Bernhardt, who used to run health marketing for the CDC. Uh, and he was the University of Florida when we when we stole him away. But he was only on campus for, I like to say, about 12 minutes before he became interim dean and then dean of the College of Communication. The the growth that we've had is really honestly not what we would have expected. I think we thought our our growth would be would come a lot from doing research projects funded by you know NIH and so on. And really it's turned into kind of the, the practice of our center doing the work. And so we've gone from three staff three years ago when I took over to 16 now, but that includes three graphic designers and a web developer and a copywriter um, because they're the people who are doing the work uh, guided by some of the research and expertise of the faculty and grad students. That's really interesting. And it feels like a trend we'll probably see happen at more uh, more colleges because that certainly is in the middle of kind of this whole convergence of how people are are interacting with, with healthcare and with medicine. It's very interesting. Full disclosure, you and I have known each other for a tremendously long time. Uh, we met at Michigan State uh, when we were both undergraduates. Um, kind of interesting to think uh, how long ago that was that we were playing hockey together and, uh, and, and a, in East Lansing. And our careers really very different directions. I went very corporate, kind of into the tech world, um, you into academia. It's kind of interesting to think that we've converged now into speaking on a podcast about something that we're both working on. Um, so near and dear to what's happening with around the pandemic and COVID-19 and, and the kind of interest in people understanding uh, health communication and how technology plays a role in that. So kind of fun that we have an opportunity to uh, to do that. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about kind of what is health communication? Like when you talk about that or when you give a lecture talking about health communication, like what is it and why is it so important right now? 
Yeah. So when I talk about healthcom, there's a standing slide in every single talk I give to any audience, which is a definition that we've adopted and used. And so we talk about health communication being both the science and the art of using the communication to using communication to advance the health and well-being of people and populations. And so the part I always really hit hard is the science component, because uh, whether my audience my audience tends to be either people working in public health or medicine. And to a lot of those folks, they tend to think about communication as this soft, squishy skill that like you're good at, or maybe you had a good mentor, or maybe you're really outgoing and that means you're good at communication. And everyone in the audience knows at least one human in their life who is very outgoing and is not good at communicating. And so we talk about it being like, there's an evidence base to health com. I have a really good colleague who studies how do you break bad news to people? Like there's a best way to do it. She can train you in it. You can get better at it. And so when we started adopting evidence-based health communication, all these people in medicine and public health were like, oh, there's also a science to the thing that you do. And the, the people, the populations is the other part that I tend to spend an extra minute on only because doctors tend to think of health com as like patient provider communication and people in public health think of it as like, you know, don't do drugs campaigns they see on TV or something. And we think about it as kind of any level at which communication can happen there are people affiliated with our center doing research in that. So yeah, sure, provider patient, but how do families talk about health? Um, how do organizations use technology to communicate about health? Mobile apps, social media, mass media campaigns, kind of any level of communication, you can be thinking about how that can be done in support of people's health. So it must be a fascinating moment in time for you where all of a sudden every company in the world is doing messaging related to healthcare and related to comms and stuff you've been studying. So do you feel like the whole world is all of a sudden doing the things you've been talking about for so long? Uh, it's kind of funny the the day that UT officially shut down before spring break, there were a lot of people being like, so center for health communication. Hey, what are you, you know, what are you guys going to do here? It's a lot of folks realized all of a sudden why things we've been working on were really important. The other thing that I kept saying and just will say on forever at this point, because people are like, what is what you know, what do we need to know right now about COVID-19? It's like actually there's a ton of stuff that we know about healthcom that applies right now. Whether people are actually executing on that plan or that knowledge or not is a completely different story. But like the CDC has a really good uh, manual for how to communicate during kind of a crisis and emergency situation. It was last updated a couple of years ago. They don't need to update it right now. Um, like kind of the template is in place. What what does make it harder is that we it's a novel coronavirus. Like there's just stuff we don't know. And I think that's where some of the ambiguity and the hard part comes from is, you know, one week it's like, should we be wiping off groceries or not? We don't know. And then the next week there, you know, people studied how long does it live on aluminum versus plastic versus cardboard. And now all of a sudden we have a better answer there. And I think that's what's made communication really hard right now is even people who are smart and really well-intentioned and doing the best they can, like the knowledge they're talking about sometimes changes week to week because we know more than we did a week ago. And it makes it look like people don't know what they're talking about. But really, we're just learning new stuff every week right now. Yeah, it is interesting how fast things are moving. It's really challenging in our customer base who are corporate marketers because typically your corporate marketing message isn't changing on a daily or hourly basis as things shift. So it's been really interesting to watch people adjust to that and figure out how to react quickly on really important concepts about people's health, which again, if you're a corporate marketer, you probably don't get up every day a year ago thinking you're communicating something that is so critically important to people. 
So that's been really interesting to watch. And I do want to get into telemedicine a little bit because we've seen that coming way up. But before we do that, I was seeing on your Twitter feed, you were talking about some PSAs and things that you and the team there were reviewing and kind of looking at how people talk about things like social distancing. Can you tell us a little bit about the the work you all did there, what you found in reviewing uh, some of these PSAs and the way people were communicating kind of health best practices and some of the things you've studied before? Yeah, one of the things that we, because everyone was sort of asking what we could do, and I, I knew immediately the answer wasn't producing our own, you know, social distancing graphics and messages, because for everything that our center does, like our internal team is not the content expert. Like if we do a project related to opioid misuse in Texas, you know, we get the right faculty from the med school, school of pharmacy, social work, nursing, and then pair that with the right kind of communication expertise. And then the staff team kind of makes it all go. And I mean, COVID, it's like we would need the covert experts. Like that was clearly not kind of the right answer. And so what we wanted to do was find messages that we could find anywhere technically in the world, but like really focusing on the U.S., that we're doing different things that we're sort of putting into practice that evidence base of health calm, and then trying to raise those up a little bit. Like it's, I understand why every state health department, a billion counties, a million cities. I mean, there's so many people building their own social distancing graphics. I get why it's happening, but it's really frustrating that like, there's probably some, you know, random local city in Wyoming that has the best one in the country and no one's ever going to know about it because we don't have good systems to quickly test and then disseminate the ones that are the best. Like it, it's nonsense that like, it's really frustrating right now that everyone's duplicating a lot of effort. And then sometimes you see ones that probably really aren't that great. And some that are really good that nobody else knows about. And so we want to take the approach of being a little bit of a help spread the good stuff rather than create our own stuff. So when you're, when you're looking at the, the different PSAs that you're getting feedback on, how do you um, go about getting that feedback? One and two, um, what are some of the things that you've learned in terms of what works well and what doesn't? And so, one of the things that we were working on is I, I talk to my students all the time about like the theories that we use to build messages. And, you know, a bunch of undergrads start rolling their eyes as soon as a professor says theory. But I always tell them it's, you know, theories are just tools to do a job more quickly, more consistently, and more effectively. And so there was a really good graphic and it, it looks like a photo from like a, actually a bad stock photo from a cell phone ad where it's like three dudes in a bar and they're yelling at the guy's phone, like they're watching sports on it. And like the little graphics show that like one guy is like going to see his grandma later that day. And one guy has an undiagnosed heart condition. There's like little kind of like thought bubble things around each guy. And we liked it and wanted to raise it up because there's an idea in health communication that one of the ways you can get people to change their behavior, hopefully, is helping them understand either how susceptible they are to something or how severe it would be if this thing happened to them. And so if you're some random 20-year-old, like you don't think this is very severe to you probably because especially early data was that it affected elderly people. So trying to say, it's not just about you, it's about your grandma. Or, you know, there's risk factors that make it worse, but you might have an undiagnosed condition that actually puts you at risk. None of those are going to work for everyone. But so we weren't even collecting data on those. We were looking at it with sort of the things we know about what works for messages generally. And then when people did it well, we were like, oh, this one's doing a great job on this particular element of making sure people feel like they have agency in their actions at a moment when we don't feel like we have a whole lot of agency at all. So trying to frame things in a way that they can take control of their health. 
Got it. So you're kind of using heuristics that you know to to work to work well. So in terms of communicating health related information, um, one of the things that we've been talking about at user testing is that in situations like we are in currently with a, a global pandemic, is that people's stress levels are super high, and um, we know that when you're stressed out or when there's something that is sort of taking away some of your attention that you have less ability to really process. Um, you know, I think the average U.S. citizen reads at like the, I think it's the eighth grade reading level and a lot of people read lower than that. So um, do you guys have any heuristics or did you get any data around um, perhaps how people are comprehending some of this messaging in this time of stress? Yeah, so a lot of my my research personally is focused on health literacy. So this kind of idea of better understanding how do people find health information, understand it, use it, communicate about it. And, you know, something around the last national survey was that around one half to one third of U.S. adults struggle with health information. And that's on our best day when we're not all stressed out. I mean, in moments like this, even people who normally would be great are going to struggle. The information we're getting right now is really complex. So like we're all functionally struggling with health information right now. And so one of the principles of doing that work well, probably eight, 10 years ago, everyone was starting to get the memo of sort of plain language, go for an eighth grade reading. Like that was what everyone was getting. What we've been, like what I personally have been working on, and it's really from sort of accidentally landing in the school of advertising, I think, where a lot of my, a lot of people don't care, like advertisers don't necessarily care if you know at all why you're doing something it's all about engagement and persuasion. And so it helped me think about this good mix of engagement, persuasion, and education. All my years of doing this, no one's ever been like, could you please make this health information more complicated? And so we we try to focus on creating engaging messages that are as simple as we can manage. And then even if you're a person who struggles with health information, that extra engagement that comes from a great visual, you know, novel content, whatever it is, can help them kind of engage enough to then make sense of it and, and hopefully use the information in a way that can support their health. Got it. Our worlds are weirdly um, aligning. I've got my graduate degree in human factors and information design, which basically is taking um, how people think and what their strengths are and weaknesses and using that knowledge to apply it to design and experience. Um, and my, my project um, at the end of uh, the program was around health literacy. And I looked at, I don't know if you remember, there was a, it was called the Partnership for Clear Health Communication. And there were a bunch of companies that signed up to be part of this partnership. And to be part of the partnership, you had to produce content at a certain reading level. I think it was seventh or eighth grade. And so my project was to go through and look at their content and actually evaluate the literacy levels of it. And what I found was that basically no one in the partnership was actually adhering. Um, So it's really interesting because it's, there's some lip service around it, I think, but also it's just like, it's hard to make things easy to read and easy to comprehend. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting too. So I did a project, I got, I got to interview people who design direct-to-consumer drug ads. And this was years ago. And um, I think it was Pfizer had a, a program at the time where if you touched a Pfizer brand, you went through a clear health communication training program. And when I interviewed those folks, like they had seen the videos I would use to teach my students about health literacy but in that case, it was actually sort of government policies and fear of being sued. Like the, the system was set up to make them not even use the training they'd been given. Like they know it's dumb to say, you know, talk to your doctor if your family has history of renal problems. Like they know no one knows what that means. And if you said kidney, it'd be 
way more people would understand it. And there's still a doctor there who can ask the actual questions, but they, they, in the interest of policies that are about uh, like sort of thorough communication, you're making people not even be as good at this as they could be. And so I think there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of good that can be done from kind of thinking about unintended effects of well-intentioned policies like that, that actually make the communication worse than it could be. So Mike, how do you test the ability for people to comprehend that? So when you run a, a study or you run a, an evaluation on how folks are doing, and you're trying to understand if people really comprehend these complicated things. Like we see two basic problems. One, people don't want to appear that they didn't understand something. So you have to figure out how to test that. And then the other is, especially around health-related information, um, self-reporting is, uh, people are skeptical of that. We all claim to floss every day and some do, some don't. We all claim to go to the dentist more often than maybe people really do. So how do you, how do you recommend folks actually test that the message that they're putting out there or the survey that they're running is really giving them quality data in an area that's kind of personal to people. We tend to misrepresent the data and we also tend to act like we understand more than we do. I mean, I know when I'm Googling my health problems, I'm fairly certain I'm getting it exactly right. Like I'm sure most people are. So how do you, how do you evaluate if people are really understanding those things? Yeah. So one of the goals is to be as sort of objective and sort of test people if you can. And so in health literacy, one of the ways you can assess people's health literacy is this uh, tool called the newest vital sign. And you basically give people the nutrition label from a container of ice cream. And then you ask them six questions. Like if you ate the whole container ice cream, how many calories would that be? And it makes them find the right information, do a little bit of math, tell you back. And other people will do like sort of how confident are you filling out medical forms? And we've actually given the same people both assessments and they don't overlap all that great. And there's some people who like ace the objective test and then rate themselves as not that health literate, which probably is a sign they know enough to know they don't know everything. And there's other people who do terribly on the test who then rate themselves really highly and everything in between. And so I, as a person, tend to prefer the more objective tests when it's possible to do that because people's self-reports are all over the place. And they're really hard to interpret, not even counting situations like, did you wash your hands the last time you used the bathroom? Where norms and stuff, I mean, there is only one correct answer. And I've done projects where we had students sit and watch people go to the bathroom and uh, wash their hands afterwards and to test kind of the efficacy of hand hygiene promotion campaigns. And so the the numbers you get when they self-report are not the same as objective measures. So I have to ask, this is pre-COVID, but how bad are we at washing our hands as a society? Oh man, this is a project we did like eight, nine years ago, which it's funny because it's like why research in general is useful because now all of a sudden we have a campaign that works in hospitals that's useful. And the the baseline stat was something like two out of five people don't wash their hands after they go to the restroom, which was really horrifying. But it's, I do a thing and when I'm giving public talks back when public talks were a thing where you know, like I'd ask an audience of 400 people, like how many of you washed your hands the last time you went to the restroom and all 400 people, every single time, like no one has ever not raised their hand when I've asked that question in public. And I've seen people in the front row who I knew didn't because I saw them go to the bathroom before my talk. And I, I don't like publicly shame them or anything, but it's, it gets to that idea that people's self-reports are just not what you can get from observing people um, and from kind of more objectively testing them in a lot of ways. Makes sense. All right, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about telemedicine. This is a, obviously a thing that's just completely taken off. 
Uh, we've been doing it here at our house. I've got three kids running around. We're continuing to injure ourselves in light of the pandemic. So I've had uh, telemedicine conversations with all kinds of folks about all kinds of different things. Uh, but I know, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you did your PhD in and around telemedicine. So can you tell us a little bit about what that was like when you did your PhD? And, and then we can talk a little bit about what's changed in light of what's going on. Uh, yeah, a few things have changed. Uh, the very first project I worked on was a telehospice project, and it was providing hospice care by video phone over like actual phone lines with little, you know, one and a half inch square video cameras to people across Michigan who were on hospice care. And I think people initially are like, how could you possibly provide hospice care by video phone? And it was never meant to replace in-person care. It was meant to be a supplement. And so people would end up seeing their, their hospice nurse four or five times a week instead of twice a week in person. And the nurses loved it because they got to see their patients more. The patients loved it because they got to see their providers more often. And there were also examples where it, it saved patients a lot of pain and suffering because a, a quick video call solved a problem that would have required a nurse to drive, you know, 90 minutes to get to some rural patient. And so it was, it was, that was the project that was the first health comp thing I ever did. And I fell in love from the very first one because it was like a way that the work I was doing in school could really help people lead healthier lives or die with dignity was really meaningful and exciting. And and when you dove into telemedicine initially, did you find that there was a spectrum of where it was most helpful? Is it is it kind of you know general access to the quick things, which is kind of what we're all using it for right now? Which is like, hey, my kid you know bonked their head on something, and I talked to a doctor about it. Um, if I remember correctly, at one point you were telling me about some work you were doing that was more about getting people access to specialists. This idea that you know you you can get really great care sometimes if you live near a big city, but maybe less so if you don't. I mean, do you find it really covers the whole spectrum or is there an area you have found that really lends itself particularly well to telemedicine? In general, one thing we found pretty consistently was that actually providers were usually the main gatekeeper, like providers like knew and felt very strongly. They would miss sort of the personal touch and connection mm-hmm. with a patient, which like I get, I mean, as a professor, professors feel like they can teach better in person um, than, you know, via video too. And so that was a really consistent finding at the time. I think what's happening now is that, for a long time, telemedicine advocates were like, it could be good for all kinds of things we're not using it for two months ago because, you know, you want to bring your kid in for the bonked head or whatever. And, and now this is sort of forcing adoption of telemedicine by a lot of reluctant organizations and providers and for specialties and situations it wouldn't have seemed real perfect for before. So I think we're going to come out on the other side of this with much broader usage of telemedicine and people being like, oh, wow, that, that care is either as good or it's, it's better, or, you know, a lot of people rethinking what what telemedicine can actually be good for. And we're, we're going to go back to more traditional models of care because telemedicine sort of was a fix, but not a good enough fix in the long term. And we did some, some work just to try to understand people's perceptions around telehealth. And there were folks that um, we talked to that were currently using telehealth, those that were hesitant Um, And then those who actually just recently adopted just due to the COVID pandemic and realizing that they didn't want to take the risk of going into an office. One of the perceptions that people have, though, of uh, and their hesitancy around using it is quality of care. Part of me wonders, is this um, something related to communication that providers could be doing a better job of? Um, ensuring that people are going to get the same quality of care? Because it sounds to me like you believe that the quality of care is the same, if not better, through telemedicine. 
the goal was always either to provide sort of equal care at lower cost. Like we were, it was like this trade-off thing at the time when people were doing this, you know, of their own free will. I think a lot of it right now, the two things that come to mind is one is no one is doing, there's a lot of telemedicine happening that we didn't plan on. It's sort of like when people say like, colleges started teaching online this semester. It's like, no, we were crisis teaching after spring break. Like no one planned on this and we had a week to try and figure it out. That's not online education. That's kind of crisis education. So I think that we're doing crisis telemedicine right now, not telemedicine on purpose. And so I think the telemedicine itself will just continue to get better as people get better at it. And then I think it's also expectation setting. Like I think providers or organizations can do a really good job helping people understand what this telemedicine thing is going to be like, what's going to be different, what's going to be all all the things to just make it easier for people to kind of get what they thought they were going to get, which will lead to people being satisfied. Like if they have realistic expectations, they're going to be satisfied. Yeah. I also, my experience with telemedicine during this has been, I think I could get better at it. uh, And maybe so could my doctor. We were both kind of figuring it out together. You know, I was with my three-year-old, the first one I did. And so it's as much with me as it was with her, the dialogue. And I felt like I was this critical communications component as part of this whole thing. Uh, She actually ran into our kitchen island and split her cheek open. And then this doctor's asked me questions like, well, how deep is it? I'm like, "I, I don't know. Like, And I'm like putting her face in front of the camera. And she's like, stop it, dad. Stop it. Like the whole thing. Like, I wish I had a recording of that call. It was kind of. A little all over the place, but oh also God. great. I mean, we would have been doing the same thing in person, yep. but it was very interesting how I felt like all of a sudden I was like a physician's assistant in training, trying to like manage a, a squirmy patient in my lap that I'm like pushing in front of a camera. You know, we kind of made it work and, you know, we got some good, good advice out of it. So it was, it was worthwhile. And it was like all that saved time of uh, not taking her to actual clinic and all this stuff there. Like you're like, I mean, it's what, what. Would there have been slightly better care in person? Maybe because they could have like looked at it or whatever, but like, I'm sure you're much happier with the way that went than all the other nonsense you would have been doing. So yeah, yeah, yeah it was certainly worthwhile. I will say um, it was very nice with an injured three-year-old not to have to get in the car, drive somewhere and try to keep her occupied in a doctor's office waiting room. And then to go into the next room we wait in and all of those things. It was remarkably timely. It was kind of a 10 minute interaction um, right there in our house. But I do feel like there's a skill set on both sides of that equation that over time, if it was something I did regularly, would we'd get better at. It might be something in a lot of cases I might really prefer. I think that's also where, you know, doing good research on all these telemedicine implications would be really handy because people are going to experience on the patient side benefits of telemedicine they wouldn't have anticipated or thought about. Um, I remember one of the the people in that hospice project, she said she loved that every time she was going to see her nurse on the little video camera, she's like, I make sure I'm looking all good that day. Like it was like, it was, it was fun for her. And I don't think anyone would have been like, this is going to be a fun system or a fun part of, I mean, it's just, but it was like, she really thought the calls were fun and that was meaningful to her. And so it's only in the course of people, I think, doing these visits and the programs running for a while that all these extra benefits are going to start to pop up that will just become part of the way people make the case for telemedicine going forward. So maybe as a, as a last question, um, communicating health information is so important right now. Um, you've been studying it for a long time, but all of a sudden we're all doing more of it. We're going to continue to do more of it, I think, for a while. Do you have any uh, thoughts on kind of the best ways or best vehicles? I mean, is this better over digital? Is it about getting in front of people at the right moment? Like, What are some of the kind of tips you would recommend for folks that maybe don't have a 
long history of health communications, but all of a sudden find themselves thrust into the role of communicating health information? Um, I mean, the the two things that come to mind, the first one is what you said, kind of the right information at the right time. Like in a lot of ways, it's not any different. Like I teach my advertising students, general advertising stuff, and then I make them do at least one health project, even a normal advertising class. And they're like, oh, like it's the same thing. Like, I mean, there's, there's bits of health come theory and things, but this idea of you know, user experience and understanding your, your, your target audience, media habits and all that, like sometimes it's the billboard, sometimes it's a, it's a mobile ad, like it's not fundamentally different. People are going to be good at this. I think the other thing though, for people to be really aware of is that like health com or communication broadly is not always the solution. Like sometimes it's a policy thing that needs to change. And, um, you know, drunk driving is the real, is a really, really good example that for a long time, People were going to try and communicate their way out of drunk driving. And eventually it's a policy solution where there's just much harsher penalties or tech. Like that's why texting while driving is still a problem. Like we keep showing people scary car crashes. And then five minutes later, people are texting while driving because they're like, well, I'm good at it. Not like the person in that ad. And so just trying to be realistic with what communication can do versus where we actually need more of a, a policy solution or other solutions that aren't communication. I think that makes sense. Well, uh, this was really interesting. I, I really appreciate you spending time with us. You know, this is top of mind for so many people right now. Uh, and to have somebody who's been studying this for so long and, and working across both a health college and an advertising college together is really quite unique. So we really appreciate you making time and, and chatting through this with us. It was great to be here with you guys today. Thanks for tuning into the Human Insight Podcast. Want to keep the conversation going? You can visit our podcast hub at usertesting.com slash podcast and check out past episodes. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play so you never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed today's show, please tell a friend and leave us a rating on iTunes.